As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Surveillance with Tom Keen, Jonathan Farrow, and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. They raise rates. That's about it. Federal funds now at a range of five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That is the highest in 22 years. In their statement, Fed officials dropped the phrase about pausing to assess the state of the economy, replacing it with the committee will continue to assess additional information and its implications for monetary policy. Future guidance was identical to June, leaving the door open to another rate move in the future. In determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate to return inflation to 2% over time, the statement repeats, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, and economic and financial developments. The economic assessment is little changed. Activity has been expanding at a moderate pace, perhaps a little faster than the modest pace seen in June. Job gains remain robust, unemployment remains low, and inflation remains elevated. Tighter credit conditions are likely to weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation, but the extent of these effects remains uncertain, the statement says, and the committee remains highly attentive to inflation risks. No change to QT. The decision was unanimous. Conclusion, see you in September. My McKee, get on vacation, seems to be the message from Chairman Powell and the team. Chairman Powell's got to speak in about 28 minutes' time. The news conference coming up. That statement, a bit of a snooze. So let's check out the price action off the back of it. It's one. Are they done? That was your rate hike from the Federal Reserve. Your equity market just a little bit softer still, trying to recover. We're down by about two-tenths of 1% on the S&P 500. On the Nasdaq, we're negative by 0.4%. The fate of the Nasdaq, of course, through the next week in the hands of earnings from Meta, Apple, Amazon, over the next seven or eight days or so. Outside of that, into the bond market, your two-year yield coming in just a touch, just a little bit fading after that decision. Now just about unchanged on the day with the two-year at 488. And if you turn to the FX market off the back of that with yields just about unchanged, the dollar showing just a touch of weakness against the euro in response to this decision. Euro dollar at about 110.74. TK, a rate hike from the Federal Reserve. It's about the what's next. It always was. 22 years out, you go back. I believe the math is to 2001. Joining us, uh, Diane Swank, Chief Economist, KPMG. Bob Michael continuing with us with J.P. Morgan. Diane, I'm going to just argue this, and I did this two days ago in a YouTube short showing the NASDAQ 100 decline of March of 2001. Things unraveled the last time we were at interest rates of this level. Do we have an analog here to the collapse of the market in March of 2001? Can a Fed policy affect a present stock market collapse? 
Well, it certainly can if they go far enough. And so far, it's been remarkably resilient. I would argue that we're also seeing this against the backdrop of what looks to be a bubble emerging in Gen AI, which is a um, little reminiscent of 2001, but not quite there. But I think that's important to remember as well. I think the larger issue for the Fed at this point in time is that financial conditions are fighting them a bit. And even though they've got additional quantitative tightening, they've continued that, that's why they're still going forward. And I would argue one step further in that the good news we've gotten on inflation recently further emboldens the Fed to actually get to that 2% target. There was sort of this sense among people around the Fed and some within the Fed that, you know, they'll get close to 2% and then feel they've kind of done enough because of what they thought would be the pain needed and the trade-off needed to get to 2%. I think they're going to feel a little more emboldened now to actually get there, which means tighter policy for longer than many expect. And I think that's something that we've sort of not really come to terms with yet is sort of the unspoken side of what the Fed had been saying is that people were expecting the Fed to kind of stop short of 2%. It seems like uh, this is Operation Don't Make Waves. It seems like this was not a Fed looking to job on the markets into anything. This was the Fed trying to back into the shrubs and disappear. Diane, would you agree with that characterization? Is that sort of the goal for Fed Chair Jay Powell as he takes the helm of that uh, press conference meeting in about 25 minutes? Well, certainly they didn't want to change their message, whether or not that's fading into the background. I mean, given the easing in financial conditions that we've seen, particularly in recent months and in recent weeks, um, that's something the Fed that has to sort of uh, be a bit concerning to the Fed. What they're worried about is not what the inflation data is going to be by September. They're worried about the end of the year seeing a potential acceleration and that it's a bumpy sort of ride down to 2% and that we go in fits and starts and some of those mean an acceleration back up again and that's what they're worried about and anything that we see that's too much of an easing in financial markets that's going to feed into that remember bank credit is only about a third of all credit in the US economy although there are a lot of spillover effects even in shadow banking industry for consumers from the tightening that we're seeing in the banking sector. If you are just tuning in, welcome to the program. Fantastic lineup going into the news conference with Chairman Powell in about 25 minutes' time. We're talking to Diane Swank and Bob Michael as well. Bob Michael of JP Morgan Asset Management are with us around the table in a studio. Bob, just initially, your reaction to that decision five minutes ago? I think it was exactly on expectations. They wanted to get the 25 basis points done. They didn't want to convey accidentally anything dovish. Uh, they reinforced that additional firming may be necessary, that inflation's elevated. Uh, they're trying to do exactly what Diane talked about, not give financial conditions a chance to ease further. But they are. The Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, I believe it's 11 ratios. Michael Rosenberg invented it with his team. It still shows an accommodation that screams. I'm thinking of Hollenhorst. It's Citigroup and others go the other way, including Ellen. The, the idea, where's the ammo for the next meeting to raise 25 beeps? What's the data that will drive that? I think they would need to see inflation start to tick up. Uh, not stay stable or continue to decline like it's mm. doing. Uh, that's the only reason I would think they would hike at the next meeting. I think by the time we get to the September meeting, 
inflation will have improved to a degree, and I think you'll see more labor markets lack, that they'll sit there and go, uh, we've done plenty. Diane, what's your concern for the press conference, given the fact that Jay Powell has a penchant for being a bit more revealing than he'd like, eliciting the uh, reaction that perhaps they were avoiding in the statement? Well, I do think that they want, I, I think Jay Powell is going to go into this press conference being a little more defensive in terms of not wanting to ease financial conditions more and not wanting to have a confirmation bias on that. So I think he's going to be much more astute to that in this particular meeting. I do think it's hard for them to raise rates in September. However, we know that in October, the medical component of the CPI at least reverses after 25% decline in insurance from a year ago in the June number on CPI. That reverses both month to month and on a um, underlying level year over year in October. And once you get to November, you could see a bump up in inflation again that does worry the Fed more, along with some other issues that we've got coming in the pipeline with supply chain uh, disruptions, everything from what's going to happen with grain prices to the fact that energy prices have come back up, all of those things coming back in with persistent demand. Further complicating September are strikes. Um, we've got UAW maybe on strike by September. We have avoided the Teamster strike, but the SAG strike has a lot of spillover effects, which has a potential of giving us a very strange August employment number that could even move um, to zero or into the red just because of the fallout effects on the industry. And I think those things are going to make it very difficult for the Fed to move in September. But September, they lay out their forecast again. And they'll, we'll get the view from there in terms of higher for longer and do they expect one more hike. I think they're going to want to keep that in their pocket to be able to do it if they need to later in the year. Bob, Diane just laid out basically sticky inflation or stickier inflation, things that come back, whether it's the labor strikes or whether it's some of these year-over-year comps as uh, supply chain issues get rear their heads again, as well as a whole host of other issues, including gasoline. We mentioned that earlier, surging. What's your pushback to that, to all of these base effects that start to That's lose That's not what I luster? heard her say. What I heard her say, it's business as usual. Nothing's quite black and white. Everything's mixed. We look at a lot of things in here. And what you're betting on is if wages still remain elevated, that companies will be able to pass along those price increases to consumers. We're seeing that they're not able to do that to the degree they were able to. Consumers are pushing back, they're going down brand. We've also looked at wages quite a bit, and we looked at a lot of them. We used, looked at unit labor costs, we looked at the employment cost index, we looked at average hourly earnings. We took six of them, we weighted them, and we came up with the peak in wage gains was last year. It was just about 6%. Today, it's just under 4%. 3.5% wage gains is what the Fed and Chair Powell have indicated to us is fairly neutral. They're not that far off. It's going in that direction. Prices may go up for certain things, but what we're seeing from the consumer is they'll just cut back spending somewhere else. Let's talk about this cumulative tightening and pull out a quote from the statement from the Federal Reserve, which on the surface of things sounds pretty boring. It reads like follows. <clears throat> In determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate to return inflation at 2% over time, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags, and that's the key word I want to fix in on, the lags 
with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation. Neil Dutter, one of my favourites out there over at Renmax, saying this, the Fed is wedded to the long and variable lags hypothesis. After 18 months, we have seen home prices accelerate, stock prices accelerate, auto sales accelerate and layoffs sink. Long and variable lags is a concept that might be outliving its usefulness. Diane Swank, I know you've got to run, but I'd love your input on this debate. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think actually the, the lags are much longer than the Fed actually thought. The Fed really had gone into this tightening cycle thinking that there was almost a real-time reaction function that the lags had shortened, and they were wrong. And in fact, what we saw is this mortgage winter where people won't move out of selling their 3% mortgage home um, or listing it, or they've already paid off their mortgage and they can't afford to go into a higher rate. That, the transmission mechanism on monetary policy was blunted. That doesn't mean it doesn't eventually hit, but it has elongated the lags. And I think the Fed is worried about that, that the lags are still out there. And that's, again, why you don't move in September, because you could see more headwinds, as we talked about earlier, in terms of you know, credit market tightening, what consumers face, rejection rates on everything from consumer credit cards, mortgage rates, and mortgages and vehicle loans have all soared. Now, they've soared over a period since 2013 to on vehicle side to record high levels, but you know we don't know historically if that's really where we're at. But I do think it is important to note that there is some things the Fed is going to be watching for to see how much does this slow down the economy going forward. Dan Swank of KPMG. Dan, thank you as always. Wonderful to get you to weigh in on a Fed decision which came out about 12 or 13 minutes ago. 25 basis point rate hike. Bob, you were listening to that conversation. Can't you make the argument just as easily as saying, policy lags are really long by also just saying they're also really short. They're long and variable is what they are. Are they? <laughs> they, they are. Okay. I'm going to quote the Fed. And, and also, when I hear the, the conversation about supplies and, and pricing, we're also looking at Greenspan's favorite indicator, vendor deliveries. And that's shown the greatest improvement going way back before the financial crisis. So the thought that there was pricing power because your goods were stuck on a container ship in the Pacific, forget about it. They're here. They're actually piled up in warehouses and on shelves. And when you look at inventory to sales, they're off the charts high. The only way to clear them in an environment where the consumer is clearly cutting back, going down brand, and is stretched is to cut prices. That's good. Can you say the same thing about services? We'll see. I think so. Isn't that the big question, though? Forget the goods argument. I, I think so. I, I think just the cost to finance, travel, leisure, all of those things on your credit card, which is what is happening. That's why revolving credit usage has gone up so much. It becomes punitive after a while. It's just not sustainable. Bob Michael of JP Morgan Asset Management alongside us on Fed Decision Day, the 25 basis point hike behind us. No big changes to the statement. The news conference with Chairman Powell begins in about 16 minutes' time. Joining us now is City's Andrew Hollenhorst alongside Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Andrew, you've had the benefit of extra time to go through this. Your take on what we learned 15 minutes ago. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting because of what did not change. This seems to have been very carefully put together so as not to send a dovish message like Diane was talking about. Um, really notable, I think, that the Fed could have taken the opportunity to say, 
headline inflation has come down. Core measures are still elevated, but they left that statement unchanged. It still just says mm. inflation is elevated. Um, on the growth side, what was modest growth is now characterized as moderate growth. So just the, the, the tiniest inkling of a little bit of hawkishness that's creeping into this statement, at least right. relative to expectations. Some of that little bit of hawkishness on the street, folks, came from Jim Bianco, who joins us right now in Chicago. Jim Bianco, you know, I look at where you are in the bombshell you had a number of weeks ago of saying maybe we're a little more sticky than we actually think we are. Where is Jerome Powell's presumed r starred path at this press conference, the zeitgeist is he's down to 2%. Things are normal. We're going to get back to normal. I'm going to suggest you disagree with that. Yeah, I do. I do think that we might be on a year-over-year -year basis looking at the lows of the year in inflation the, you know, in June. And that we're going to see there's going to be a big base effect for the rest of the summer. And it's going to start to drift towards four. And we'll be lucky to be back even close to three by the end of the year. And that will bring up the big question is, is the long run, you know, rate of inflation, is it two or is it two and a half or three? And remember, the Fed has already told us that neutral rate is 50 basis points above the long run inflation rate. So if it's two and a half, then neutral is three. And if the yield curve goes back to some normal level, which is around 150 basis points, you're talking about a, a fair value for the 10 year at four and a half. And we're at 390 right now. So we're a little bit low. And it, so it all comes back to this whole argument about inflation and where's inflation gonna go. And I've been arguing, you know, the big fancy word that this is a post-pandemic economy. That means that all the models on how inflation are gonna work haven't worked since 2020. Right. And we have to write some new models on how it's gonna work. Work from home being one big thing about how major that the labor market has changed. And a lot of other things too, like with the supply right. chain. And I think we're gonna wind up with stickier and, inflation. And Lisa, this is critical because this is what our booking team, we've got the morning crew and the afternoon crew that do it 24 seven for us. And to see the setup here of Hollenhorst, Michael and Bianco and the collegial disagreements they have is the heart of the matter. And how it rolls back over into whatever to make or lose in the stock market. Which is the reason why I'm kind of shocked that this was an 11-0 decision. There was no I agree with that strongly. Given the fact that there are yes. such divergent this, opinions. This delusion, this delusion of unanimity is just, it's, I don't know, the British do this better than we do. Well, I guess that that's what I would ask you, Andrew. Do you think that it undermines the Fed to have unanimity at a time where there clearly is not unanimity in markets or on the Fed? Look, I share with you the surprise that we would have no differences of opinion at this point. I think Powell has been somewhat masterful in terms of getting these decisions to be unanimous. Um, but we saw that sometimes coming at the cost of clarity. I think that's what happened in June, where we had this strange decision not to raise rates, but to signal that it would be appropriate to raise rates another 50 basis points. Um, so as you try to keep that committee together and get unanimity, um, it's a little bit troubling in terms of getting clarity in terms of the communication. Bob, your take on this in terms of whether it's helpful or harmful to have unanimity at a junction that is clearly so fraught with disagreement on the street and at the Fed. I don't think the unanimity is the accurate portrayal of what actually occurred in the meeting. And I'm dying for Bullard to go into public life so that into private life so that we can ask him these questions. I think what they did is they locked arms. Um, as Diane's pointed out many times, they are concerned about financial conditions easing. This is another way to try to stop that from happening. 
I, I, I look, Bob, at this. I can just see you with a speech with Bullard on at Purdue. What a debate that would be right now as he moves from the St. Louis Fed uh, to Purdue. That goes to the dots in the dispersion. This was a Fed. Let's be, for those that don't keep score on this, like I don't keep score on this, was this a dot-free meeting. How important is the setup to the next dispersion, the next theater of dots? Are we beyond that? We're living in an AI world now. What are we doing? Not doing dots and summary of economic projections at every meeting. Let's do it and indicate more about what the Fed is thinking. I think you want more of, transparency. I, I if you're going to do it, do it. Know, and it. I think one of the, particularly. Not usually, but after the last meeting, we've all talked about, what were they doing? They didn't hike in June, but they indicated another 50. That was odd. If, if I were Mike McKee, I would ask Chair Powell, what about the dots in the summary of economic projections from the last meeting? Do you still stand by those or would have anything changed? Well, it's unclear which dot belongs to which policymaker. Bostick might have been one of those that would dissent today. Bostick doesn't have a vote on the committee at the moment. Bullard doesn't have a, a vote on the committee either. The Board of Governors, that would be where my issue is, because the Board of Governors, even if they believe that they shouldn't be doing one thing, they all vote as a committee, as one. So I just wonder, Andrew, how much we should read into the lack of dissent at today's meeting, and that maybe the September one is the one where it gets a little bit more fiery. Yeah, I think it's definitely the case that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes here in terms of some disagreement. We saw some of that in the minutes to the June meeting. So there are real differences of opinion. And I think like Diane, like the others were talking about earlier, this could really get interesting in September. In September, they'll have to make a decision. First, whether to hike rates, I think they probably won't because the inflation data has been softer. But then what do you do with those dots? Are you still showing that you're going to hike again this year, that would imply a hike in November. Um, are you then indicating that that's the last hike of the cycle if we see inflation picking up further? And I think that the risks are that it will as we get towards the end of the year. So it gets really tricky as they get to that September meeting. And then December, dots again. Are you showing no further hikes? Are you showing cuts? What do financial conditions do with that? Jim, come back in here because you were talking about how models are broken and they're not really forecasting inflation in any kind of accurate way. What is the compass for the Fed? Do we have a clear sense of what data dependency means in the post-pandemic era where suddenly the data is not a reliable forward-looking indicator? Uh, to be frank, no, we don't. And that has been one of the bigger problems is that in a data-dependent world, what the Fed is trying to do is they're trying to divorce themselves from any theory that of how the economy and inflation is supposed to work and they're supposed to react to the data. And then we get what we've had in the last two months. They paused in June. We got a big miss on in the inflation report. Year over year went from four to three and then they hiked. And so I'm not exactly sure why they paused and why they hiked and what they're going to do next right. based on their recent action, which is why I would underscore what Bob mm -hmm. said that, you know, Mike McKee's got to ask, what are you doing and where what is what is driving these decisions? Right. You pause and then we get good inflation data and then you hike. So there's a big confusion going on out there right, right. now. And it's all part of the modeling that I'm, we've seen in the market. It's been very difficult to figure it out. I want to set up one question here and give it back to John to get to the press conference in six minutes. I want to go to Bianco and then Hollenhorst and then Michael here. I want to know your 12-month forward real GDP is you also violently disagree on inflation. Jim Bianco, 12 months forward real GDP. What's the statistic? About one and a quarter or so. Okay. Hollenhorst? 
I think we will have seen a decline. I think we'll have seen a recession by then. So we'll be sub 1% GDP. Faroli Kasman, what do they say? We'll fold it in. I, I think we'll have passed through minus one and a half to minus 2% real GDP. This is not, John, in the American zeitgeist right now. The combination of those three opinions wrapped around their different inflation outlooks, this is removed from Meta, removed from Google. We can't let them go just yet, Tom. There's still seven minutes before the No, I know, but you're going to, you know, I, I got to get back to Tottenham. I'm just trying to see what the future is. You just want me to speak for seven minutes now. Yeah, I'm going to read about Tottenham. As you were talking about that, I was noticing Mercedes. Mercedes-Benz raised their full-year guidance. Yeah. Just sitting there thinking, hike again, yeah. 50 basis points. Mercedes still getting right. it done. Coca-Cola too. Yeah, Jim, let's talk about that, though. In all seriousness, who's paying these high rates? Where are they biting? Now, that's a good question. Um, I think that they're biting at the business level, that they're, they're wanting up to pay higher rates. They're definitely biting at the residential real estate level. You've seen a wholesale change in the way that the residential real estate market, existing homes don't move. And we've been trying to fill the gap with uh, new construction because we've got a, a multi-year low and then the volume of existing homes. So they've been biting there as well. What they're not biting, by the way, seems to be in the cost of capital in the stock market. That doesn't seem to be bothered by it at all. So it's unclear as to where it is. And that might be leading to an idea that maybe all we've done with a 500 basis point plus rise in rates is just pretty much track neutral. And we're not really that restrictive, which is why we're not seeing these high rates hurt the economy as much as we thought. Bob Michael, what would you say back to that? Um, I think it's biting in a lot of places. I think it is biting in the corporate world. You look at bank loans, defaults are rising pretty sharply. You look at the private credit markets, talk to people in there. There are real tremors there about what's happening in terms of exchanges and extensions. You start looking at, we didn't talk about central business district office space. That's still out there, unoccupied. That's owned in places. We saw that in Goldman's earnings. That has yet to be reconciled. So it's biting hard. We talked a lot about the consumer. They are really struggling. Would you like to talk more about Goldman earnings? No, take a pass on that. I thought you might. Andrew Hollenhorst. Mm. Oh, <laughs> Bob went there. Hollenhorst went there. Come on. Sure. Bob, <laughs> went, Bob went there. No. I said Goldman. No. Um, Andrew, <laughs> I think we need to spend a bit more time talking about this. Just how much of the disinflation that we've seen recently is a consequence of the tightening cycle of the last year? How do you know? How do you identify that kind of thing? Well, I think that's partly why the Fed's in a little bit of a different, difficult position here, because they've taken some credit for some disinflation that they did not have a lot to do with, which is the decline in energy prices, which is the decline in food prices. Um, and then we're seeing as we head into this meeting, we're having very large daily increases in gasoline prices. So it's certainly not going to feel to a lot of people like inflation really has been conquered. Now, Somewhere where they do have a direct effect is on the housing sector, shelter inflation. And again, though, I would raise a caution there that we're kind of in this narrative that shelter prices are slowing, and they are. There's a lag that's introduced into the way that the data are put together. So those shelter prices will slow in official inflation statistics. But look at the reading from Case Schiller. Look at what we're seeing yep. in the real-time housing price data. Uh, those house prices are rising quickly now. So there, there's some real upside risk to inflation, um, which would kind of go back to Jim's point that maybe 5%, 5.5% policy rates aren't the amount of restraint on the housing sector, at least, that we thought it was going to be. So I promise you this really is the final round of questions for all 
three of you with the news conference about three or four minutes away. We need to get your questions for Chairman Powell. We touched on it briefly. You don't get to repeat that twice. Jim, what would you ask the chairman today in about four minutes? Basically, what has been driving the decision-making to pause and to hike? I kind of said that earlier, but it does drive at the confusion as to what is really on top of mind for the Federal Reserve. Andrew, what about you? I would ask about the rebound in the housing sector. Prices, growth, upside risk to both. Well, Michael? I'd ask what range of inflation and growth metrics are they using and what levels would they look at for them to, one, pause permanently and, secondly, cut rates? What would they tolerate? I've heard that from PIMCO that maybe <clears throat> two-point-something. They'd be happy with that. They'd be okay with that. Does that resonate with you, two-point-something? Uh, on headline, for sure, as long as the trend is headed down. Jim Bianco, Andrew Hollenhorst, to the two of you, thank you. Moments away from that news conference with Chairman Powell, following a 25 basis point hike from the Fed chairman. Bramo, it's almost question time, and you can hear from the panel in the last 20 minutes, a bit of confusion over why they paused last time around, why they hiked this time around, if they are truly data dependent. What data they're looking at, what their model is right now to gauge out inflation going forward, what their threshold is, as Bob was saying, to hike or to cut. We don't have a sense of any of these things. The model is, come on, we're looking at it. And there's super core. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone was high five in the Fed a few weeks ago <laughs> when we got well, that inflation data. Yeah. It was like victory lap time, Bob. Victory lap. People talking about a victory lap for the chairman of the Federal Reserve. If you step back and look at growth and inflationary pressures, they are moderating. They should just put it in park and come back in January. And do a victory lap? I don't know you, about I the feel, victory That feels lap. too premature to me. That really does. Yeah. One print, TK, and start celebrating. This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to our team for putting together this just brilliant conversation, collegial disagreement. The common theme here from Marquette academics to UCLA academics to University of Pennsylvania academics is this is a press conference without theory. And I know I'm going to get pushback on that from Mike McKee and others, but off the pandemic, they're flying blind. And, and Bob, I would say they're as data dependent as we've ever seen. Yeah, I, I think uh, so. Uh, ever. Well, Ever. look, I think that you are right that this is perhaps a theory-free Federal Reserve that's still trying to hew to some of the theories that underpinned their role in all of this. I would argue one of the biggest questions, John, is whether tightening has the same effect on an economy that is not showing signs of slowing down. To your point, the lag, the variable, long and variable lag. A super long. Super long, really but, short. But, but also variable. <laughs> I've got so no then how idea. So then how do we then talk about the efficacy of what they're doing? Lisa, they don't know which is why they're in the risk management business and they've got to work out what is the biggest risk, cutting too soon or holding too long. And that's really, really difficult to do. I think it's easier to say we need to cut because we've gone too far. It's harder to say these disinflationary trends are on their way back towards taking us to a sustainable path to 2%. That's a much, much bigger call. I don't know the answer to what's the biggest fear, inflation or recession. We don't know. And what you hear is from everyone on Wall Street, a different answer. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.